Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. And I'm Damian Garde. Adam Feuerstein is out today. It is Thursday, April 29th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. President Biden endorsed drug pricing reform in a speech to Congress this week, but those words rang hollow to many advocates. STAT Washington correspondent Rachel Koritz joins us to discuss why many in D.C. are disappointed. Russia has described its COVID-19 vaccine as a safe, low-cost tool to help end the pandemic. But some regulators say the doses being delivered aren't as advertised. Virologist Angela Rasmussen joins us to explain. Finally, a shortage of cheap, little-discussed plastic tools is hobbling scientific labs around the world. We'll talk to Stats' Kate Sheridan about the precarious situation for pipette tips. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from Stat. A silver lining of the pandemic is the rapid acceleration of digital health and telemedicine. I'm here with Manoj Narayanan, the CTO of Real Chemistry, a digitally connected global health innovation company. Manoj, your team recently published a report about how doctors' digital behaviors have changed during this digital health renaissance. Tell us about that. Thanks, Angus. According to a recent survey of 500 doctors, we learned a tremendous amount about how physicians' online and offline behaviors are changing. As more and more doctors spend time online in their professional and personal lives, how we reach them in the right place, with the right message, at the right time, is more complex today than ever before. Thanks, Manoj. To learn more, visit go.realchemistry.com stat. President Biden wants Congress to pass drug pricing reform. He just doesn't want it enough to include the idea in his sweeping economic policy proposal. On Wednesday night during his first joint address to Congress, Biden called on lawmakers to give Medicare the ability to negotiate prescription drug prices. We've talked about it long enough, Democrats and Republicans. Let's get it done this year. This is all about a simple premise. Health care should be a right, not a privilege in America. But to advocates for drug pricing reform, those words rang hollow after months of White House rhetoric suggesting the president would take a stronger stance. Stat Washington correspondent Rachel Kors joins us to discuss why many in D.C. are disappointed with the Biden administration. Rachel, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So what is the issue here? Why is Biden's vocal endorsement of drug pricing legislation being perceived as a reversal? Well, the most distinct kind of example of when the White House said that they wanted to do something on drug pricing um, really soon in this legislative package that the president unveiled last night was on April 1st. And White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain uh, went on kind of a talk show sort of um, webinar with um, Politico and really laid it out. He said, you know, we want to do um, something to lower health care costs, including for pharmaceutical drugs, and we're not going to have an American family's plan without it. Um, but that's what we saw last night was an American family's plan without um, substantive action on drug pricing. So why do we think the White House backed away from including drug pricing in that American Families Plan? Well, I'm unfortunately not a mind reader, but in my reporting, um, you know, I have heard a couple theories. Um, and one, um, I guess the biggest theory is that you know, this social safety net kind of um, boost that President Biden laid out, you know, it's, it's very ambitious. It's big. It includes a lot of very popular items with the Democratic caucus. And if you think about the Biden White House, you know, they have very much had a front seat to 
uh, the fight over the Affordable Care Act and just kind of how that sucked all the oxygen, you know, in Washington for so long. So I think some of the um, theories that I've heard, you know, there was obviously disagreement within Democrats about how to spend savings from drug pricing and the drug pricing proposal that's kind of on the table from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Medicare price negotiation. It's very aggressive and it's not clear that it has votes to pass in the Senate at this moment. It's funny because, you know, covering the biotech industry through multiple administrations, there is just this perception from Wall Street that if Democrats are in charge across the board, it's really, really bad for the biotech industry. Um, But now Democrats are in charge across the board and it doesn't actually seem that bad for the biotech industry. I, I mean, do you expect that Congress could come through on drug pricing this year in addition to these two massive spending bills the White House has prioritized, or is it just really, as you were just saying, too complicated? I think if they don't include drug pricing in either the infrastructure package or the social safety net package, um, Congress has a very crowded calendar for the rest of the year, and it's definitely um, difficult to see something um, come together completely independently um, of those two packages. But I think some leaders in Congress have indicated over the past couple days that they, you know, may want to kind of overrule the president and say the president doesn't want to have a drug pricing fight, but we feel like this needs to happen now and this is a great vehicle for us to do it. So, you know, leaders in Congress might do their own thing, but at this point it's looking like they're going to have to find some other proposal um, to compromise that isn't out there at this moment. So even looking outside of this year, Is this week's news kind of a bad omen for advocates of drug pricing reform? Like, you know, as Meg suggested, if if they can't get it through when Democrats control the White House and both chambers of Congress, when could they ever? I mean, it's not a good omen, but um, it's important to remember that Democrats have um, extraordinarily narrow control of both houses of Congress right now. You know, they have to have near unanimous support um, across their caucus. And you know, knowing the dynamics in Washington, just, you know, the big umbrella that is the Democratic caucus that contains, you know, both your Bernie Sanders and um, Senator Joe Manchin, um, who's considered more of a moderate. You know, it's you, unanimity is a tough thing to achieve. So, you know, certainly there may be a time in the future when Democrats have more commanding control, um, when, you know, we might be looking at a very different dynamic um, and we might have different proposals on the table to look at. Um, but at this at this moment, it's it's tough for them to get anything done, even though they do technically, you know, have control. So what you're laying out is all much more sort of nuanced um, than, than this question I'm about to ask you. Uh, but I, I wonder... Um, How much do you think things like um, Biden's support for, you know, drug development through the cancer moonshot and his understanding and sort of deeper relationships with the drug industry uh, because of that, um, and also the fact that we are in a pandemic and the biotech industry and the pharmaceutical industry has really proven its value in terms of being able to deliver vaccines quickly. Um, How much do you think those things might play into perhaps this administration's um, lack of aggression, maybe, on the drug pricing issue. Right. And I think that is definitely something we're um, trying to do more reporting on, because at, at times it's it's tough to split hairs. Um, I think the distinction is that the Democratic Party is not united right now on what to do. And I think 
this whole drug pricing fight exposed another fight about, you know, Medicare for all, Medicare expansion versus building on the Affordable Care Act. And it's sort of an existential question for Democrats moving forward. And drug pricing has kind of gotten lumped in with all of that. And like you were saying, though, there is this dynamic of kind of this uncertainty around how much the pandemic or, you know, President Biden personally has changed the game on how we think about the votes in Congress. And I think because they haven't taken votes yet, I don't think we fully know that dynamic yet. And there are several, you know, important lawmakers, um, especially moderate Senate Democrats who are kind of keeping their powder dry at the moment and, you know, haven't said a whole lot about what they support or what they don't. So certainly I think there there are these larger questions as we move kind of past the is the Affordable Care Act going to be entirely dismantled tomorrow phase um, of the Democratic Party and just being in a defensive posture for so long to, you know, making these big decisions about um, what's next. And I don't I, I think this episode really shows that they they don't quite have a complete answer to that yet. Well, sort of on that same point, you wrote this week that Democrats' inability to get on the same page when it comes to drug pricing felt like deja vu because Republicans struggled with the same issue under President Trump, despite his uh, vocal support for some reforms. So I was curious, I know it's very early in the process, but what does this episode tell us about the relationship between the Biden administration and the top congressional Democrats going forward? You know, I think this episode was particularly striking just because um, the White House really has rolled out, I mean, almost six, $6 trillion in spending with very little drama. And um, we saw the drama this week um, as there were, you know, letters flying everywhere from different factions of Democrats in Congress. And I think it just really illustrates that um, there may be a divide in kind of where Congress falls in, you know, putting healthcare on its priority list and, you know, where um, especially House Democrats fall on kind of what, what they feel they need to win the midterm elections. And I think that's, that's a divide that's going to be very important because this first kind of two year um, window we're looking at, especially this first year before lawmakers really are back in election mode is going to be the best chance you know, President Biden has to get his agenda passed um, with any certainty, um, just because it's kind of the the honeymoon phase. There's always more political capital at the beginning um, of a presidential term. So I think, you know, it certainly highlighted this rift. um, But I think it's going to take a little bit more time to see exactly how it's going to play out. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. COVID-19 vaccine developed by Russia's Gamaleya Institute, called Sputnik V, has looked really good. In a study published in The Lancet in February, the vaccine's efficacy was 91.6%, putting it among the most effective vaccines for this pandemic in the world. The technology is similar to the approach from Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. It uses adenoviruses, essentially cold viruses, as vectors to ferry genetic instructions for the coronavirus spike protein to the body's cells. Those cells then make that spike protein, and then the immune system makes antibodies to the spike protein, thereby conferring protection. 
So Russia emphasizes the vaccine costs less than $10 per dose, and that it can be stored at 2 to 8 degrees Celsius, or 36 to 46 degrees Fahrenheit, making it easier to use around the world than the vaccines that have to be kept ultra-cold like Pfizer's. It says Sputnik V is already registered in more than 60 countries. But some regulators are now starting to ask questions about the vaccine, Brazil's in particular. That country this week rejected the vaccine, saying questions remained about its safety, manufacturing, and development. Joining us to discuss is Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist and research scientist at Vito Intervac at the University of Saskatchewan. Angie, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. Thanks so much for having me back. So Angie, what is your understanding of why Brazil rejected Sputnik V? So my understanding of why is that apparently they detected replication-competent virus specifically within the adenovirus 5 component of the vaccine. So the Sputnik V vaccine is actually two vaccines. It's what's called a heterologous dosing regimen. They start off with an AD26 vectored vaccine. That's similar to what the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is. And then they follow that up with a booster dose um, of a vaccine that's vectored with adenovirus 5. This was the adenovirus 5 component of the vaccine. And what they determined was that this vaccine is actually a replication-competent virus, meaning that it's an adenovirus 5 that can actually replicate and potentially could cause uh, downstream complications since the vaccine itself is designed to be replication incompetent, uh, meaning that the adenovirus vectors are not going to replicate beyond expressing the spike protein that you're developing immunity to. And so among those complications, as, as we mentioned, these are essentially cold viruses, would be getting the common cold. And so it's curious, wouldn't it have been seen in the clinical trials of Sputnik V if, if there were replicating vector there? Wouldn't lots of people in those trials have gotten really bad cold? Well, that that may be the case, but in this case, it's not being delivered via the respiratory tract. So you wouldn't necessarily expect these viruses to cause a respiratory disease. These are being delivered intramuscularly, which is not the way that adenoviruses are normally transmitted when they are human pathogens. That means there could be potentially unpredictable results of what could happen, particularly in recipients who might be immune compromised or have some type of immune dysfunction. Um, The thing to also point out is that there's still a lot that's not known about this particular issue. But in the the phase three clinical trials, at least in the data that was reported in the Lancet paper describing those trials, there wasn't evidence of replication competent virus uh, in those those vaccine preparations. And normally making sure that there's no replication competent virus there should be part of any good quality control program uh, for manufacturing a vaccine. Well, to that point, you know, there have been quality control questions raised in other parts of the world, too, specifically in Slovakia, where regulators said a batch didn't match the ones reviewed by The Lancet. Do you think that's the same issue or is there something else also going on here with with quality control? And and kind of what does that make you what worries does that bring up for you about this vaccine and the way it's being sort of developed and manufactured? Yeah, so the, the situation in Slovakia, I have only seen reported that uh, they they declined to um, allow that a batch of that vaccine in because it wasn't consistent with what was reported in the Lancet. But I don't know what the specific issue was, if it was this or if it was something else. In general, though, um, this certainly gives me less confidence in the quality control processes and the integrity of this product going forward. If you are not getting the vaccine that you think you're getting or that uh, you know has been presented in terms of the, the data that was 
given for the phase three clinical trials, then that means that the process is what's the problem, not the vaccine. And the Gamalea Institute certainly has a long history of developing vaccines, including uh, adenovirus vectored vaccines. So I don't think that this is an issue with design. It doesn't mean that the vaccine itself is inherently bad. It means that there are uh, discrepancies in the manufacturing process and to confirm the quality of the product that would, that would make me reluctant to use it as often. So as Meg mentioned earlier, this vaccine has been licensed in dozens of countries around the world, at least on an emergency basis. And I know it's been widely distributed in Latin America. Should people in those countries where it's being used be worried if they've taken the vaccine? You know, it's really hard to say that right now because we just don't have enough information about how commonly this is affecting all of the lots of vaccine that are being manufactured and distributed in those countries. This is definitely going to be something that the regulators in those countries are going to want to look into. It is going to be really important to figure out what the risks are uh, if somebody did get this vaccine that was replication competent and, uh, and what that might mean in terms of vaccine safety. So, you know, for better or worse, global vaccine development has become a matter of soft power diplomacy between the U.S., China, and Russia. How do you think the mounting concern about Sputnik V might affect geopolitics? Well, I'm certainly a virologist and not a geopolitics expert, but you can imagine that um, Russia has presented the Sputnik V vaccine as something that they are doing uh, out of altruism, and that's their way of contributing to global health. And as you also know, there's been a lot of discussion about the inequities in terms of rolling out vaccines globally. So this potentially deals a pretty serious blow, I would imagine, in, in terms of Russia taking a leadership role in making sure that vaccines are being distributed equitably uh, to, to many countries around the world that desperately need them. So speaking of Russia's PR campaign around this vaccine, you've actually heard from the folks behind Sputnik V uh, after you posted a detailed Twitter thread on what's been found. Uh, what did they say? Well, they, they told me to stop uh, spreading fake news and directed me to the Gamalea Institute's statements that uh, E1 uh, is in fact deleted from their vaccine vector, which I have no doubt that it is. Um, that That is how this vaccine was designed. As I mentioned before, the Gamalea Institute has a great reputation and their scientists are excellent. So I, I don't think that this was intentional. Um, but that said, I don't consider it fake news when a country's regulatory agency presents data showing that, in fact, there is replication-competent virus in the lots that they evaluated. Um, that's not fake news. That is an observation, and that directly uh, contradicts what their statement says. So I think that, um, and this is just my opinion, but I think that it would be a good idea for Sputnik to be cooperative with these regulatory agencies, because I don't think that you can just point to a statement and say, oh, this is fake news. This was a plaque assay done by virologists, um, and it was sufficient for a country like Brazil, which desperately needs vaccines, uh, it was sufficient for their regulatory agency to, to decline authorizing this vaccine for use. 
Do you think that there's an element here? I mean, in the same way we kind of looked at the way regulators treated the the Johnson and Johnson extremely rare events of you know blood clots with the J and J vaccine. A lot of folks looked at that as, hey, this is a sign that the re- the regulatory system and the safety surveillance system is is working really well, and we should have more confidence in vaccines as a result. Do you think the fact that you know the Brazilian regulators are saying, hold up here, we see something you know that we need to look more into, and that Slovakia flagged that bad batch? Do you think that's a sign of the regulatory system globally also working? And do you worry that in the many countries that have been using the vaccine, maybe they don't have that those same kinds of safeguards in place and, and people are more vulnerable there? Yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility. I mean, it's really hard in some cases to compare regulatory agencies around the world because apart from WHO, which can make recommendations, there's no such thing as a global regulatory agency. There's no global agency that can say this vaccine shouldn't be used anywhere. And certainly there are countries um, that that really don't have much in the way of a robust regulatory system. Uh, and in fact, you could argue that given that Russia authorized this vaccine before there was any type of clinical trial data, that, that Russia might be among those countries. Um, but I think overall, you know, the WHO has said today that that they are still in the, quote, back and forth phase of evaluating the Sputnik V vaccine. I think that the WHO recommendation, at least, will will carry a lot of weight. But I do think that this certainly shows that the Brazilian regulatory apparatus um, is intact at looking at this. I, I agree with everybody who said that the J&J pause was also evidence that the U.S. uh, regulatory system is robust as well. And just from personal experience, um, I got the J&J vaccine about three weeks ago, uh, and at no point was I really worried about these severe blood clots just because of that pause of the operating uh, with the most complete data possible to make a decision about how to regulate that particular vaccine. Um, I should add, too, though, that those severe side effects observed with Johnson & Johnson and perhaps also uh, with AstraZeneca, if they are related, um, aren't necessarily the same problem with the Sputnik V vaccine. This is a different issue. There has never been uh, an issue with vaccines being given for Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca, to my knowledge, that were uh, problematic in terms of their manufacturing or quality control. And in fact, the the doses of Johnson & Johnson where there were quality control problems uh, were, were discarded prior to those vaccines ever making it to market. Again, showing that our regulatory systems are robust and working. Angie, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. follower of BioTwitter, which we assume you probably are if you listen to this podcast, you may have seen folks like Arrakis CEO Michael Gilman and Mount Sinai microbiologist Florian Kramer in recent weeks bemoaning the lack of one thing, pipette tips. These tiny but crucial plastic things are ubiquitous in labs, and now they're in shortage, putting everything from newborn screenings to academic and biotech research in jeopardy. And the reason is more interesting than you might think. Stats' Kate Sheridan dug into it this week and joins us now to explain what's happening. Kate, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So first, let's set the stage for the maybe less lab-inclined listeners. What are pipette tips used for, and why do they matter so much? 
That is a great question. A scientist I spoke to for this article actually put it this way. Uh, pipette tips are fantastic at moving very small, very precisely measured amounts of liquid from one container to another. And moving small, precisely measured amounts of liquid around is pretty much how science happens, really. I was wondering how that happened. <laughs> right? So, so COVID testing has obviously been a big strain on the market for pipette tips, but you actually found the reasons for the global shortage involve a lot more than that. So what did your reporting show? Right. Pipette tips got hit with both supply and demand issues pretty much simultaneously. Yes, of course, there was more demand than usual from COVID testing programs, but some academic labs, even some commercial labs, were also closed during the testing ramp up because of stay-at-home orders. So for a while, that wasn't so bad. Unfortunately, there were some blackouts in Texas, of course, as we all know, um, after a winter storm that shut down some of the uh, the supply, the actual raw material supply for, for plastics, which come from oil, of course. On top of that as well, there have been some other freak accidents around this, the plastic supply chain as well. It's not related to pipette tips. Um, but, you know, I've, I've heard about a fire that seemed to knock out a lot of the supply of the trash bins of pipette tips. Those are also in shortage. Um, biohazard bags are also really hard to come by. Just anything involving plastic is is hard to find right now. So what's the most worrying consequence or potential consequence of this shortage? I really think that depends on who you're asking, to be honest. I mean, every lab is concerned they might have to shuffle the order of their experiments, which, of course, could have effects on drug development timelines if things get really bad. Public health officials are worried that they might not be able to run the kinds of programs that they normally run, which includes things like screening newborns for uh, genetic conditions that might affect uh, their their care in the first days of their life. It also might affect, I think I've seen uh, one report that suggested it might affect uh, screening programs for sexually transmitted infections as well, um, some of which is done, I believe, at public health labs. There's a lot of potential effects, which is most worrying, I think, is very much dependent on where you are in the in the ecosystem, though. Definitely. Um, I mean, especially the health screening and, and the newborn screening. I mean, you point out in your reporting that there is some evidence that delaying newborn screening for some of these things can actually lead to really bad outcomes to, to deaths even. And um, you reported that the Association of Public Health Laboratories has asked the federal government to prioritize pipette tips for these newborn screening programs. Is that likely to happen? Truly, I don't know. An administration official told me that the White House is trying to find new ways to get more pipette tips into the system. But you know, I've been following this story and reporting on this story for a couple of weeks now, and there's been absolutely no movement as far as I'm aware. Um, so I really don't know what the administration's planning on doing on on this particular issue, but I do know that they're trying to do something on the issue. This last year has just given us a glimpse into supply chains around the world, and you have given us yet another one. Kate, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Before we go, an update on a story we brought you a couple weeks ago. ALS patient Lisa Stockman-Moriello's quest for access to an experimental drug from Biogen. The company said this week that starting in mid-July, after patients in its placebo-controlled trial are all moved onto active therapy, it'll allow compassionate use access for people with this particular form of ALS who are most rapidly progressing. That's earlier than the company had planned to open access, but Stockman Moriello says that it's still not soon enough for her and for patients in her situation. In a statement this week, she called Biogen's decision a death sentence, saying she probably would not make it to mid-July, and that if she does, she'll be in such bad shape that she may not see any benefit from the company's drug. Stockman Moriello continues to point out that expanded access to experimental drugs is not new and says there are ways patients who can't be included in trials can still benefit.
Finally, if you're listening to this podcast, you are sure to enjoy Stat's newest show, The First Opinion Podcast. Each week, host Pat Skerritt talks to expert guests about the issues and ideas that are shaping health and medicine. Recent episodes covered what the Civil War can teach us about pandemics, the problem of antimicrobial resistance, and whether excited delirium is a real diagnosis or an example of medicalized racism. You can find The First Opinion Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you've got a line on some pipette tips. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Thank you.